Hello again, Shabri Bird here at Quantum Agriculture. I'm sitting here with one of our new Quantum Agriculture consultants, uh, Rory Turnball. And we want to welcome you, Rory. And so I'll start by asking you a few questions. Where did your interest in growing up in Laguna Beach, where did your agriculture interest and uh, commitment? Oh, by the way, Rory is an agronomist. And, and tell us a little bit how old you are. and. Oh, well, I uh, just turned 25 here a few days ago. Um, I Basically, I got into agriculture from a diet, actually. Uh, I used to eat fairly unhealthy, living in Orange County in Southern California. I didn't have uh, the best food access or freshest food. You know, I wasn't really growing up around farms. And so the more I uh, just started eating healthy and saw how much it affected my life and my well-being, it just really threw me to find more answers and seek the, the yeah, basically I've just been always been a very curious person. And so um, just trying to find the answers as to how to grow the healthiest food and the best food and most nutritious food. And um, So when did you decide to become a soil agronomist? What age were you? That would have been about 20 about 20 years old. Um, I was uh, managing a hydroponic uh, store, a retail hydroponic store, and uh, a lot of the, luckily I was in an area where a lot of the customers were still doing organic soil growing. And so um, just basically being able to provide them with all these different materials and resources that they were looking for just kind of sparked my natural interest in it. and. I just sit there, you know, reading fertilizer labels and these microbial inoculum labels and just basically researching all day long. And then just before I knew it, I was being around some pretty uh, respected, you know, farmers and growers and winding up knowing more about it than they did, and at least on the technical side, and just kind of had a natural inclination for it. And so before I knew it, I was just kind of naturally consult consulting people before I was even really getting paid for it. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And how'd you come across quantum agriculture? You, you attended our 2015 advanced course, which was wonderful. Yeah, just kind of serendipitously, I stumbled upon the just researching online. Uh, I found uh, I'd been aware of you for a few years and just having a natural inclination into biodynamics and um, always been taking lots of different uh, hats from different disciplines and uh, biodynamics is always a huge inspiration for me and so naturally just heard Hugh's name around and then serendipitously one night just kind of got linked onto the website and saw the course was going on and decided to go. I remember the call. I'm a soil consultant from California. Come on. <laughs> so what projects are you working on right now? Right now I'm uh, mainly focused on a quality control at Hilton Landscape Supply. Um, they're a large composting operation. How large? Uh, about 20 acres of composting total and then another 40 acres of just general uh, landscape uh, supply materials like masonry and uh, wood chips and bark and soils and all kinds mm -hmm. of things. Um, but they, uh, they, they're starting to really cater to the to agricultural industry and try to shift into basically being a hub for sustainable ecological agriculture and um, they 
need my help. <laughs> <laughs> it feels good. Yeah, it does. So, so you have had some very interesting clients as, as a consultant. Uh, you want to tell us a little bit about some of them? Yeah, I mean, uh, mostly uh, growing up in California uh, and being so young and just in this the current political climate, uh, a lot of my uh, customers and clients have been uh, cannabis farmers, like medical cannabis farmers. And, um, uh, but also that's basically just led me to various paths I don't think I would have had access to with being the, at the age I am and you know, needing, uh, basically getting the, the, the level of knowledge I got at the age I got. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I was really blessed to grow up with uh, the director of the Permaculture Institute of Southern California, Bill Rowley, Dr. Bill Rowley, and uh, he introduced me to a lot of uh, like uh, Alegria Farms over in Orange County. I did a lot of consulting for, uh, that was one of my first big you know, vegetable operations and food production operations. Um, I've had um, just recently uh, one of the largest hemp farms up in Oregon. Uh, 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 hemp for fabric? And uh, it is uh, seed production actually, mostly for oil. Wow. And also uh, high seed, they grow high CBD varieties. And so they do both uh, CBD extracts for the medical industry as well as the uh, uh, seed oil extracts for the nutrition and the essential fatty acid supplements. How do they press it? Uh, me mechanically, they uh, want, they're partnered with uh, or what is it, the pumpkin seed oil company? Oh. Um, uh, or, or was it Oregon, Oregon seed oil company? And then How many acres did they grow to produce seed oil? Um, they were farming 25 last year, really? but they're, uh, they have a plan to expand uh, 10,000 acres within the next, uh, I think it was four years. That's where the field broadcaster would come in handy for getting the BD prep patterns. Mm -hmm. When it won't meet Demeter certification, but I bet they don't care about that. No, no, they no. just need the energetic patterns is what's going to really up the possibilities. There. I think so. Yeah. So... Um, what do you see next, say in the next 10 years for your, Well, um, without giving away the secret plan? <laughs> <laughs> um, basically, I, I hope to really provide some sort of enterprise to the agricultural community that can facilitate high quality education and research and uh, resources and um, possibly even maybe funding and capital resources yeah. for startup farmers and people that could use the help. And um, I'm also very passionate about education. And for me, a huge focus is to bring uh, a lot of the, basically culminate a lot of this uh, information and make it available to younger people in a mm -hmm. more kind of tangible, relevant way. Yeah, we'll provide you lots of MP3 help with that. <laughs> Education's our business. Well, is there anything else you'd like to say on this podcast? Oh, it's been an honor to be here. Uh, he's it's huge, been a huge inspiration for me, and um, just the biodynamic community in general. Um, there's a, a lot of, it, it's funny to, to me because the biodynamic and, you know, anthroposophy crowd is looked at as kind of being more uh, you know, metaphysical and woo-woo-y, but to me it's... Some of the hardest science I think is being performed right. in the world today. Yeah, you've read Hughes' articles on the science behind biodynamics. 
Actually, I haven't yeah. checked everything. We have his oh, book. That, that's about all. But the only way I present it is scientifically. Exactly. We have it in your book, Hugh. Do you have Hugh's book? Yeah. And yeah. Um, and it's on it's on our website, the science of biodynamics. Wasn't I going to give him some copies here when he showed them? Yeah, I think so. I outside. Think I got some back here. So, um. Yeah, and uh, yeah, no, it's, uh, it's been an honor Pleasure to do with you uh, suggestions, man. Thank you. So there you go. Three new copies of A Biodynamics and Beyond and A Biodynamic Farm. All pinned by Mr. Hugh Lovell. He, he may find that there's certain people that uh, will really benefit from me. So, you know and what, maybe Hugh? they're not the ones that would just only if the money is biased, so if you find someone you need to know without much crimes, but would place a high value on it, then I'm sure that's the right place to go. Sweetie, why don't you sit here and sit closer, and you guys have a conversation. Give it 15, 20 minutes. Just, you know. Well, we were talking hey. just before about the, uh, how, how do you, how do you, uh, value and how do you get people to pay for the uh, for the service that you provide them uh, because because podcast, without the without the help of of your information and without the help of products to support that you know the putting that information into uh, practice then people can't proceed you know, mm -hmm. uh, we see that all the time that that uh, people will hear about these ideas, don't really have a good way to put them into effect, and so it's sort of like languishes in this uh, limbo state, mm -hmm. and it doesn't actually connect with anything that's that's functional. So. Anyway, you were asking me, well, how do you charge? And I think you have to charge separately for, for your information and for your product. Because if you expect the product to, people are, it's, they're already primed to pay for product. They expect to pay for product. Mm -hmm. But for information, it's not, that's not the norm. Mm -hmm. We expect to get our information for free. Mm -hmm. You just had a lot of experience with this in the hydroponic store, no doubt. Yeah. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, people talking to your upper hours. <laughs> well, I've had some of the people you know that bought product. We had a product and information business in far north Queensland in uh, Tolga. And uh, we sold both the information and the product, but we only got paid for the product. And that wasn't really successful. We gave out tons of information. Information was free. And uh, it wasn't very effective in terms of, of making ends meet, you know, making, making a prosperous economic enterprise. So, 
Steve figured I could make more money growing zucchinis and avocados and bananas and passion fruit and etc. And so he closed the business and he's farming and growing stuff that is almost mind-boggling. His first avocados were 30% avocado oil, which is, is almost laughable. They picked at 15. Uh, but his measured 30. So it's like, I know the quality that he produced, and I know the quality that uh, I've worked with him to produce, and I know that of the people that we sold product to and information, that maybe 20% of them really got the benefit. Most of them, it fell short. Mm -hmm. And a whole variety of reasons. So it wasn't very effective back then. And we need to make people respect the information more. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's uh, definitely something. Because I, I just, I'm, for me, it's more of an issue of just not letting myself getting taken advantage of. Just because I'm such a like, nice, giving person. And, or not get taken advantage of, but just at least making sure I, you know, I'm able to pay my bills. Just because when I'm in the business of selling information that I like to just educate people and teach people and give people information for free and have a hard time kind of putting a framework around, you know, a structure of getting it. Well, one of the things that I've seen work, and you're going to have to figure out what your strategy on this is, but one of the things I've seen work is, uh, giving a free uh, like presentation, maybe an evening uh, uh, event like we had over at the Botanical Gardens, mm -hmm. and engaging people, and we get out of that, we get people that, that come in and they want further information and so forth. But you have to, especially I think with the information, you do have to meet people's expectation and give them free information, mm -hmm. you know, otherwise that's not going to work. Mm -hmm. So they expect it to be free, so give them free information. Uh, the level of information available that they're going to need to absorb is so much greater than they realize that uh, you could afford to give away an awful lot of information and you wouldn't get very deep in the subject. So, I'd be interested in, in hearing your, you know, your thoughts about where you've seen this work and what you think you can do, because it's really, it's really something we have to think of. How are we going to reinvent this? because mm -hmm. yeah, I know the, like a, a model I've seen people doing is asking for percentages of the, like they guarantee a minimum and then you know, anything over that minimum they get a percentage of, which it, it definitely makes people respect the information, but I feel like we can do it with Doesn't it penalize you for actually using it? Yeah, it seems like it's it's not the way to go, I think. So. If you use it and you get successful at it, then you have to pay for it. That's not a very good incentive, is it? Mm -hmm. Wouldn't be for me. Well, <laughs> it's got to be other ways. 
Well, the thing is, is repeat business is very helpful, um, you know, with, with that selling product because you mm -hmm. get repeat. And that's really what our consultants, where they make the money, mm -hmm. is the repeat business on, on the products they recommend. Now, it's been interesting to watch Hugh working with the Dairy Business Center for the last four years to watch that he's actually helped them develop product. They've created a whole new product line mm -hmm. to provide their dairies. Well, they've had to, to properly use the information out there. Exactly, and also because they were out to save these dairy farms to have them be more resilient and, um, yeah, that was the important part mm -hmm. there. Yeah, partly it was saving the dairy farms, but it's really an economic issue because the way the dairy farms were going and they were putting more and more money into fertilizer and having less and less margin on their end product with just milk. Mm -hmm. uh, and the cost of productions in, in the middle of that, like breeding new cows, raising calves, uh, keeping your cows in good health so that you've got four or five lactations at least out of the cow instead of one or two. Uh, these sorts of things uh, with more and more chemical inputs into it, then there were fewer and fewer lactations per cow, fewer uh, cows got uh, pregnant on, you know, on joining. So you had poor reconception, I mean, conception rates, poor health rates, more mastitis, more a variety of things, hoof problems and so forth. And, uh, yeah, just inefficient cows. Mm -hmm. So the whole thing started turning around when they took on the biological discovery group. Mm -hmm. And I just happened to be available to help them get to the next level because when they took off on the biological story, then they immediately saw results and they got better in a lot of ways and they sort of hit a wall and they didn't seem to be making any further progress and one of them uh, said well what about this silica stuff that this guy Hugh Lovell keeps talking about and uh, so they got onto me and, and I helped take them to the next level on that. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> in that process See, the soil is so full of silica as it is mm -hmm. that the question is how do you get access to it? Not how do you bring it in there, mm -hmm. but how do you get access to the silica that is already there? Mm -hmm. And the answer to that was to feed the microbial life of the soil that has access to it. You know, grow your access. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, so I put them on a program in that direction, and we've ended up with a dry blend fertilizer using raw humates and composts where available, and a soil drench formula uh, that gives them humic acids, and in one type of soil drench gives them a little urea, and the other side, uh, it's giving them sea minerals and a little bit of molasses, a little bit of fulvic, you know, it's kind of juicing up the formula. Mm -hmm. And biodynamic preparations in all formulas. And I think really the thing that's done 
the most good or the, the least amount of input has been the biodynamic preparations. I think that's just a general rule that when you reach that level that you're just patterning things, then uh, then it's cheapest and you have the most effect. Mm -hmm. It's hard to get people to see that kind of thinking though. You know? Yeah, definitely. That's why I, I have a lot of hope for educating younger people because I feel like younger people are a lot more receptive to, to respect, at least my generation definitely seems to be a lot more open to things of that nature. Well, I saw a number of people of your age group in the, the University of Kentucky Experiment Station up in Lexington. And they sure weren't hanging out in the chemical conventional agriculture area. They were all wanting to find out more about the biological side of things. And uh, so I'm sure that's, that's part of it, talking to the people who listen. And people are going to hear the deal Yeah, yeah, people your age are going to, if you know, what's your world going to be like if you don't deal with this? No, no. <laughs> you don't want to find out the hard way. <laughs> That's an incentive for you. Well, I think one of the things that Hugh committed to when he had Union Agricultural Institute was feeding pregnant women highly nutritious foods. And then what happens then you have those as clients and then your children as clients. Yeah. And um, that's how a lot of, why a lot of people join CSAs, is to have that. You know, that's yeah. the greatest growth of organic food starts first with pregnant women. For historically. Yeah, you could see it, you know. Uh, a woman gets pregnant and she wants to do the best possible thing she can in bringing new life into the world. And it's not hard to figure out that nutrition is a big part of that picture. You know, there's almost nobody wouldn't know that nutrition has got to play a big part in that. So in my CSA, the first, I started the first CSA in Georgia. I think this was 85 or 86 or somewhere along in there, might have been 87. And I had 28 customers that paid in advance. I went down to Atlanta and I gave some free talks. And I brought my farm equipment, my scythe, my pitchfork, my axe, my uh, wheel hoe. I brought those things down there. I showed people these these are the tools I use on my farm and and I know how to use them and uh, so and I brought some of the uh, stuff that I grew mm -hmm. and let people taste and uh, you know this is what I can offer you and so 28 people signed up and that first year and I grossed eight thousand five hundred dollars gross and that was trucking it to Atlanta and, you know, putting it in boxes and stuff. But that at least allowed me to actually live on the farm and work the farm uh, as a whole. In other words, I didn't have to go off and work somewhere else. And uh, that was a 
big step down from building bridges in uh, in Atlanta and earning about twenty two grand a year. Mm -hmm. so, so it's like that was that was a big switch actually. But I sure was economical about everything. <laughs> And I started off actually market veg, uh, vegetable growing on just maybe, maybe it wasn't more than an acre. Right up there in that uh, area. And I went up from there, I kept increasing my production to where I was producing from most of the land that I could produce from. Which would have been a total of about, we were, we were hitting that six acres from there and then uh, in Vermont. Definitely on my way. You have some questions that you want to ask him while you got it? Um, <clears throat> we sure do have to be thinking on what we're going to do to reinvent agriculture because it's not going to be the same everywhere. It's going to be highly individualized and attuned to the local landscapes because we'll have to work with nature in order for this to work. We work with nature, nature works with us. Then everything ends up being free if we just manage it properly. You know, getting nitrogen out of the atmosphere, it's a free process if you manage it properly. What was I found really interesting was the my previous belief on getting nitrogen out of the atmosphere is you had to get the lime element in the soil active. And there's a lot of truth to that. You do. You have to get the lime in the soil active. It needs to be in the soil biology. Uh, it's how Rudolf Steiner describes the the nitrogen actually being dragged down into the earth by the cravings of lime. Uh, um, it's a good way to describe the chemistry in a more, you know, human way. The cravings of lime. Yeah, that's always my favorite exodus. Really, like the biggest thing I take from the, the Steiner lectures and stuff, a lot of his work on chemistry and even just agriculture in general is his ability to describe the dynamics behind these elemental beings and you know, the different and their activities. This is that the thing. This chemistry makes no sense without a study of the activities that take place. Mm -hmm. When when Steiner says that uh, nitrogen drags oxygen through the carbon structure, freeing it of its rigidity. You know, this is an animal process where hemoglobin, which is a big nitrogen molecule, it's a, a big long chain amino acid thing. And it's catching up the oxygen, carrying it through the blood, and wherever we move, wherever we free our carbon structure of its of its you know the the form that it's in and release it to, 
to achieve other forms, that the oxygen is like burning the carbon out. Mm -hmm. And we're exhaling carbon dioxide in that process. And it's just, but it's just so poetic the way he says it, you know, that nitrogen drags oxygen through the carbon structure, freeing it of its rigidity. Just, wow. It's, a, you know, yeah, it's not the way they teach chemistry, I know. Well, that's why I've, I've never taken a chemistry class. <laughs> uh, you might not need to. You learn it from the right direction, you won't need to. Yeah, it's, it's definitely feel like I've been blessed in starting at a good place and not having to build up too much dogma that I later had to break through and deconstruct. I'm often critical of our educational system that uh, requires that we test people and that they put the one and only right answer on the test as if there was one and only right answer. And uh, I found out really early in my educational experiences that if I put any other answer on the test, well, then I was in serious jeopardy. And uh, so I learned to kind of keep in the back of my mind the answers that they wanted to have. Mm -hmm. But those weren't always the answers that seemed obvious to me. But see, Dad, in bringing us kids up, Dad insisted that we learn to think. And I can remember, I was six years old and he taught me how to use a dictionary and I was kind of a, uh, like, I wasn't really engaged in doing that. I wasn't an enthusiastic student in that. Mm -hmm. And I said, oh, Papa, you could just tell me what the word means. And he said, if you rely on what other people tell you, you won't know what's going on. In other words, you better think it through yourself. You know, other people will either intentionally or unintentionally, they'll mislead you. Yeah, yeah. I'm thankful for my upbringing for my parents. They could be teaching me how to learn. That's really, really important. I find when I'm reading things, I'll read along and I'll just kind of pass out. Just, I'll lose it. And I have to go back and start over before I lost it and get up to that. It might take me three or four tries at it, especially if I'm a little bit, uh, uh, you know, tired and that sort of stuff, to sort of figure out what what it is that happened at that point where I lost it and just wandered off. Mm -hmm. But usually that that's a real learning experience. Ask them some questions, Rory. I'm sure you've got a few. Uh, um, um, 
I didn't mean to skip. <laughs> well, in this case, I want to thank you very much. Thank you for driving us from the LA airport and and being such a bright signing star for the future of agriculture. And I'm looking forward to a long-term friendship and cooperation business-wise and excitement to see your career unfold. So this is Shabri Bird and Hugh Lovell at Quantum Agriculture. And we're signing out today on our way to the LA airport to fly back to Australia. And we'll